Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Emma and Rebecca Talk IP, the series where we take a look at something that has caught our attention in the world of intellectual property and attempt to unravel what's really going on. My name is Rebecca Gay. And I'm Emma Isles. This week on the podcast, we're going to Europe. Sadly, I don't mean physically, although as the days start to get shorter and colder here in Australia, it certainly sounds pretty tempting. Instead, we're taking a look at one of the most significant developments in the world of IP for some time, and that's Europe's brand new Unified Patent Court, or the UPC. After years of planning and preparation, countries across Europe are about to embark on one of IP's biggest experiments. And who better to help us unravel the issues than our colleague and special guest, one of Europe's leading IP litigators, Sebastian Moore, a partner in HSF's London and Milan offices. Welcome, Seb. Hi, Emma. Hi, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. Hi, Seb. Um, so before we launch into the UPC with you, we thought we'd take a step back. So Emma and I have discussed patents on several episodes now, and as we've explained, patents protect inventions, giving inventors a period of 20 years or so to develop and commercialise their invention. But patents are a creation of law and each country has its own laws for granting and enforcing patents. There can be some consistencies between countries because of international agreements like the TRIPS agreement, which we've mentioned quite a few times now on these podcasts. But in practice, companies with international operations need to apply for a separate patent in each country where they want protection. And in Europe, the process is a little bit more centralised. For the 38 countries who are parties to the European Patent Convention, applicants make a single application to a central office who then grants a European patent. But that isn't really an international patent. Applicants designate the countries where they want the patent to have effect. And once granted, a European patent really operates as a bundle of national patents, with the patent being enforced and also revoked in the national courts of each individual country. But that is all about to change. The first key change is that applicants from participating countries will be able to obtain a single patent, which is truly international in its effect, which will be known as the unitary patent. And the second is the creation of the UPC or the Unified Patent Court. The UPC will have a number of locations throughout Europe. Its central division will have seats in Paris, Munich, and a third city, which is yet to be determined, was going to be London, but now won't be, uh, and appeals will be heard in Luxembourg. But there will also be a number of regional and local divisions spread across the European continent. So what then will the UPC do? Well, two things. The new court will have exclusive jurisdiction to hear disputes about the enforcement or validity of the new unitary patents. Secondly, it will have jurisdiction over other European patents, the kind we referred to earlier. But why does it matter for Australian businesses then, then Rebecca? Well, for many of our listeners, Emma, and indeed many of HSF's clients, their business um, cross businesses cross borders. Many countries have companies have operations across the globe, especially in Europe. And Australian businesses can and often do own patent rights in European countries. So they will know, need to know how this development affects them. 
And even for companies or businesses that don't own European patents, it might still matter. So any business with operations in Europe can find itself on the receiving end of a patent infringement claim. So it's still important for those businesses to understand how the system works and to be prepared. And given the potential importance of this new system then, let's make good use of our special guest and pick Seb's brain on some of the details. So Seb, to start off with, let's talk about how we got here. The introduction of the UPC is a massive overhaul of the European patent system. Why has it come about? Well, Emma, as you mentioned, um, although there is a centralised application process before the European Patent Office, an examination procedure, for European patents before the EPO, once those patents have granted, they become a bundle of national patents that need to be enforced on a national basis. And this means that if you're trying to enforce a European patent right across Europe, you're going to have to have a multitude of parallel national proceedings. So theoretically, you're going to have to enforce that patent in every European country. Now, this is incredibly inefficient. We're meant to be having a single European market. Once goods are put on one European country, they're allowed to travel freely to other EEA countries. So this system of litigation is is inefficient, to say the least. Now, this this was recognized early on, um, and there've been around 50 years of negotiation to try to come up with a more efficient system in which the European patent can be enforced and challenged centrally. And we actually got quite close to this in the 1970s, but the languages of proceedings proved to be an insurmountable obstacle. Now, fast forward um, 40 years and we get to February 2013 when all the differences had been overcome. And there was the signing of the Unified Patent Court Agreement um, with great fanfare providing for a single European court structure in which to hear actions and also the introduction of an EU regulation providing for a European patent with unitary uh, effect. Um, But then there were a series of delays caused by a number of factors, including Brexit, the gift that keeps on giving, um, as well as a complaint about the constitution constitutionality of the arrangements before the uh, German Constitutional Court. And this, I think, gave rise to a lot of fatigue amongst clients who were all primed for the system to come into force and they got kicked into the long grass. But now it looks very likely, in fact, I think inevitable that the um, patent is the uh, Unified Patent Court is going to come into force towards the end of this year. That's a very long history. Thanks, Seb. It's it's been a long term in the making. Um, So it sounds like by having a unified court, there's a lot of pros and not necessarily too many cons. Is that right? And how do you think this will change things for businesses? Well, I mean, in terms of the court, um, it will create this single form in which to enforce and challenge patents. And we're not just talking about um, unified patents, but we're also talking about existing European patents, at least for what's known as the transitional period, which will be a period of seven years from when the court comes into operation. And the thinking there is that the system is untested, so it's good to have it operating in parallel with the existing system while teething problems are sorted out. Um, so, So the pro really is that 
is basically what the whole court was set up for, which is to make um, mitigation more streamlined and efficient. However, having said that, this will be an untested forum acting, which will be enforced in parallel with the existing um, form of litigation. And that means that there's likely to be a period in which um, there are lots of preliminary issues that need to be decided, in particular relating to jurisdiction. So on the con side, we anticipate quite a few appeals on questions of jurisdiction and quite a bit of uncertainty in terms of the case law of the court. There's also a different cost benefit profile when it comes to enforcing patents in this forum. There's a possibility of a pan-European injunction, so and also the possibility of a patent being revoked centrally. So the very high stakes involved, and this in conjunction with the uncertainty, may incentivize more speculative actions, especially at the beginning. So we might be might see a trend, a bit like we've seen in the US, where you've got non-practicing entities that are backed by um, litigation funds involved in speculative litigation and trying to um, basically put pressure on, on defendants to force a settlement. So it's going to be interesting times ahead. High stakes and lots of uncertainty certainly sounds like fun. <laughs> um, and so you've talked us through the long history, Seb, and you mentioned that you think the system will actually take effect later this year. What has to happen between now and then? How, how do we know when it's actually going to kick off? Well, we'll know once Germany ratifies the agreement, or rather deposits its instrument of ratification. So at the moment, we're in this, we're in the period in which all of these systems are being set up, and then once the um, Germans ratify the agreement, then the countdown will start to the court opening, and there will be an initial sunrise period of at least three months before the UPC comes into force, during which certain very important steps can be taken in anticipation of the court becoming operative. And there will also be the um, possibility of applying for unitary patents at that stage. And our best estimate is that the court will come into effect towards the end of 2022. Thanks, Seb. Um, I wanted to ask you a question about unitary patents. So I gather that in this um, or in the early years, um, there'll be uh, a, a choice for clients to make between whether they file a unitary patent or they continue to file European patents. I'm just interested in your thoughts around how a unitary patent, what are the benefits of a unitary patent as compared to European patents and are there any limitations around those unitary patents? Sure, good question. So, in essence, this unitary patent is a single European patent right, which will have the same claims in all the states which have signed and ratified the unified patent court agreement. So what happens is you apply just as you would apply for a normal European patent. So that process is before the EPO and it's exactly the same. However, the proprietor, once um, the application is made, will have this option of converting its EP into a unitary patent within a month of grant of that right. And if the proprietor requests this conversion, the European patent will then become this um, European patent with unitary effect and will have unitary effect in all the EU member states that have ratified the UPCA. And that means that that patent is going to be subject to the exclusive jurisdiction of the Unified Patent Court. Um, in relation to the jurisdictions where um, the that, that haven't ratified the uh, UPCA, then you can just 
um, just have your patent as a classic uh, European patent in those countries. And remember, those countries include um, some fairly big countries uh, such as the UK, Spain and Poland. Um, the advantage really is the cost because the current proposal is that the cost of uh, a, a unitary patent, that is the cost of applying and maintaining, is designed to be at a level equivalent to that of getting a European patent and validating European patent in four countries. So in, a, in any circumstance where the applicant is seeking broad protection in uh, Europe and seeking protection in more than four countries, then this system should be cheaper. So that's the pro. The con really is that um, it is subject to the unified patent court jurisdiction. And so it's subject to central revocation for that court. And as I mentioned before, it's an untested forum. So it's a bit of a gamble now I'd say, until we know what the case law is going to be like for the UPCA. And in terms, Seb, of that new forum, this unified patent court, which is going to have to deal with um, highly technical subject matter, uh, do we know who the judges are going to be that will make up that court? Not exactly. Um, what we know is that the... Uh, there's going to be a panel that adjudicates some cases, and that panel is going to consist of um, both legally and technically qualified judges. So in terms of the technically qualified judges, we don't know who they're going to be. We know that the sort of profile of the people applying, they tend to be um, patent attorneys who have some experience of litigation and um, I've got, clearly have got a, a relevant technical qualification. Um, then also on the legal side, we don't know exactly who the judges are going to be, but we do know that there are provisions that have been introduced under the um, national law of a number of contracting states allowing their patent judges to moonlight in this um, new patent court. So we suspect that the legally qualified judges will be taken from the um, ranks of the European patent, existing European patent judiciary, which is a good sign. And then in terms of the sort of composition of the panels, that will differ depending on the instances and the divisions. But basically, the idea is to have a mixture of qualify of technical and legally qualified judges and also a mixture of nationalities in order to ensure that no particular legal tradition takes over in terms of the development of the case law. And then, Seb, so I had a question about the, the transition period, um, which you mentioned, which I think is seven years. It might be extended um, for another seven years. And in that period, um, owners of European patents, so the sort of existing traditional European patents, can choose to opt out their patents from the UPC's jurisdiction, which means their patents can only be litigated in the national courts, which is the current position. Uh, that sounds to me like a pretty important decision for patent owners to be uh, thinking about and making. So what, what are the key factors that you think patent holders should be thinking about when they're deciding whether to opt out? Absolutely. I mean, this is a critical decision. And this opt out has come in as a result of lobbying by various industries because, um, you know, especially in, in the knowledge-based industries, the idea of gambling a key patent in an untested forum was, was a great concern. So 
essentially um, patent proprietors can apply to opt out their existing EPs and also new EP applications that are filed during the seven-year transition period. And what that opt-out does is it takes the patent out of the jurisdiction of the UPC. So those patents can only be litigated in the current system. And of course, that's useful in terms of certainty of of knowing where the patent proprietor stands. Um, You cannot opt out your patent if an action has already been brought in the UPC in respect of that particular European patent. So if you want to opt out, you really should do it as soon as possible, just in case a third party decides to commence a revocation action um, before the UPC, because at that stage, it'll be too late. So there's this sunrise period that I mentioned of three months before the patent comes into force, and that's really when patent proprietors should be opting out their patents if they want to ensure that that they don't um, become subject to the new court. Now, the opt-out is not a final thing. If after a few years, it looks like the UPC is working and going great guns, then that opt-out can be withdrawn and the patent can come back into the system and be enforced within the UPC. So, uh, but once that happens, you cannot opt-out the patent again. So you asked me, what are the factors to consider when deciding whether to opt out? Um, and I think what you what, what one needs to do is balance, on the one hand, the risks of having this patent um, subject to an untested forum and the possibility of it being revoked centrally, on the one hand, against the rewards of, a pan, of getting pan-European relief and the notionally lower cost involved in enforcement as compared to a national pan-European campaign. Um, There are different approaches that we've seen people take. A number of um, companies have just decided to opt out all their patent families during the transition period and see how things play out. However, this one-size-fits-all doesn't doesn't work for everyone. Um, And in particular, there are a number of companies that want to gain some experience in playing in this new system. So the other approach is really to go through the patent portfolio and assess it as to which patents might be suitable um, for keeping in the system. And I think really the key features there, the key factors in deciding whether to opt out or not, are really the value of the patent in terms of what it protects and its strength. So if the patent is of high value, protects a blockbuster product and is strong, that would point to opting it out because really um, does one want to gamble that patent in an untested forum. There may be some advantages to um, keeping some patents in, as I said, to get experience on non-core products or, you know, maybe patents are a bit more speculative, have got broad claims that read onto third-party products just to be able to play with the system and maybe put some pressure on competitors. But it's a, it's a tricky decision and one that people should be addressing right now. Sounds like a, a lot of things for people to think about and consider in making that decision, Seb. Um, and we've obviously given people a lot of information about the UPC in this podcast episode. If you were to give people two or three uh, takeaways, things they should be thinking or doing uh, right now to make sure they're ready for this new system, what would it be? Well, coming back to the question of opt-outs, clearly considering which which patents uh, to take out of the system and doing that within the sunrise period, which is likely to start in June or July this year. 
Um, the, the actual process of opting out is fairly straightforward in terms of form filling, but the opt-out needs to be filed in the name of the true proprietors. So the two points that come out of that, one, if they're co-proprietors, then the opt-out needs to be filed by all of them. And that might require some um, negotiation between the co-proprietors. Um, and in particular instances where one of the co-proprietor might be a university or a, a, another government institution, the lead time to getting the um, consent might be quite long. So that's something that should be started now. Um, if the opt-out is filed in the name of the wrong proprietors, then it is ineffective. And that means that if the patent is then challenged before the UPC, um, it's too late to file the opt-out in the name of the correct proprietors. The patent will no longer be capable of being opted out. So that means that, especially in circumstances where um, stakeholders have got um, big patent portfolios and then there have been um, reorganizations within the company to do a due diligence exercise to make sure that it's clear which um, entity, group entities own which patents because often the register is wrong on that in that respect. Um, also it's worth in terms of licensing agreements making sure the provisions concerning the UPC so in particular if a patent important patents being licensed in um, say in an exclusive license, then the licensee may want some control over whether that patent um, is being opted out or not. And then finally, I'd just say that if there are patents that are concerning stakeholders and that the worried might be enforced in the UPC, it's worth doing some preemptive work to anticipate those proceedings because the UPC procedure will be very heavily front-loaded and um, it's important, therefore, for putative defendants to um, have some upfront preparation so they're not caught off guard. So I think those are the main points. Thank you very much, Seb. Um, that's been a really interesting and helpful canter through what is quite a complex um, development under European patent law, but yet very, very helpful. Um, thanks, everyone, for joining us on Emma and Rebecca Talk IP. And until next time, thanks, everyone. Thanks. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes or SoundCloud and visit our website herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.